blood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is all ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I do want to read on a little bit because um, there's something that I want to point out at the very beginning. So let's continue reading. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. And let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, we thank you for today. And we ask that as we dive into your word for this brief time, may you bless it. Bless it to our hearts. Bless it to our minds. Lord, we desperately need your word to be a light and a guide to us. And so I pray for that. And Lord, above all else, may the work of your spirit have free reign in us to change us, to bring us out of darkness into light. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, um, we've reached the portion of Peter in which Peter is giving a whole bunch of just biblical instruction to the people that um, he's writing to. And it, it would seem almost that all of this biblical instruction is disjointed. It would seem like there's no coherent um, thought that runs through this section. But I assure you there is. In fact, it's an incredible thought that runs all through this passage that Peter um, is writing here. And it's easy to miss. So I want to show it to you, and then I want to show you why it's important. First of all, let's look at the thought. Peter here is operating under what we call an eschatological way of thinking. Eschatological way of thinking. Now, for those of you that don't know what that means, that simply means Peter is talking about the end times. Now, if you go to 2 Peter 3, you get a full scope of Peter's um, 
and what Peter thinks about the end times, you know, if you're looking for a Bible study in end time theology, I would highly recommend that. In fact, I would. I would look at the way the Bible talks about end times throughout all of the biblical writers, but especially in Peter. But if you read this text, Peter talks over and over about the end times, over and over about what the Bible actually says about the end times and the judgment that is to come. Notice with me, first of all, in verse number four, after Peter has talked to them about all of the things that the Gentiles do, he said that they're surprised when you do not join in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's an eschatological statement that the Gentiles, because they live in such a way as if Christ is not going to come back. Notice the second one in verse number seven. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, you should be living in this way. And then, of course, in verse number 13, Peter says, when the fiery trials come, continue to persevere. Why? Because there is a glory that is to be revealed in the last day. What is Peter telling them here? People, Peter is telling them that they should live in an eschatological kind of way. They should live in such a way to be reminded that Christ will return. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because of the people that Peter is talking to. All the people that Peter is, are talking to are people who are being ridiculed for choosing persecution over the path of least resistance. These people are suffering for their faith. They're being maligned for their faith. And their relatives and the people around them are constantly telling them, you're foolish for living this way. You're foolish living in such a way as to believe that Christ will return. And Peter is saying, actually, no, that's not foolish at all. That all of us should live in such a way. You know, it's interesting to me, even in Peter's day, this is the case in our day. We live in a time where people don't actually mind you being a Christian. They don't as long as you're not exclusively a Christian. And the same thing is true even in Peter's day. They didn't mind them believing in Christ. Christ was just one of many other gods. The problem that they had with these particular Christians is that they believed that Christ was the only God, and he was the only way, and every other way was wrong, and that's why they were being persecuted. And Peter is saying if that's true, you should live in such a way that Christ is going to return. And it's a powerful argument to make. For the brief time that we have remaining, I want us to look at two things. I want us to look at the purpose of eschatological living. And then I want us to look at the practice of eschatological living. The purpose of eschatological living and the practice of eschatological living. What does it mean for us as God's people to live as if Christ is about to return? To live in light of eternity. Well, Peter gives us some clear examples in this text. Now, when we think of the purpose of eschatology, when we think of the purpose of living like the end times, we have a very skewed view of eschatology in our day. When people talk about eschatology, we either talk about it in terms of arguing back and forth about your particular theological position. Are you pre-trib, post-trib? Are you amill? You know, are you post-millennial? Like, that's what people do. They argue all the time about their end-time position. 
But that's not how the Bible calls us to talk about the end times. And there are some people, well, they use the end times to predict when Christ is coming back. In my lifetime alone, I've seen four people on national television being taken seriously talking about when Christ will return. And I'm like, does anybody read their Bibles? Because it's clear the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. But then you have these crackpots on television claiming to understand what the Bible says about the end times. Well, that's simply not the case, brothers and sisters, but people use it in that way. Well, the third way that people use it is in terms of entertainment value. And we've seen all the books, you know, the books, the Left Behind series and the like. But none of those ways are the ways that God says to use eschatology. In fact, if you read through the Bible and you looked at the majority of the text that talks about eschatology, there are two primary ways the Bible says we should use eschatology. When we talk about the end times, there are two primary ways. Another really good Bible study, by the way. But here are the two ways. The first is this. When you think about the end times, we should actually be encouraged by it. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, Paul tells the people that lived in his time, look, are you worried whether or not you're going to see your loved ones again? Are you worried what's going to happen after you die? Then he begins to talk about how Christ will come back. And after he talks about that, what does he say? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When we talk about the end times, what should we be doing? How should we use it? We should encourage one another that Christ indeed is coming back. But there's a second way, and the second way is how Peter is using it here. Look at verse number 7. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. What do we do as a result of the all things being at hand? He says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. How is he using it here? He's saying that if you and I live in such a way that we truly believe that Christ will come back at any time, that should change the way you and I live. It should completely change the way you and I live. Now, some of you are sitting down there and say, Pastor Dennis, I have two objections, right? The first objection is this. If it was true that Christ can come back at any time in Peter's day, why didn't he? I mean, Peter said clearly the end of all things is at hand. He lived in that way, and Christ hasn't returned back. Is this all nonsense? No. No, it's not. Because what Peter was talking about here is the eminent return of Christ. Not that necessarily Christ would come in his day, but the eminent return of Christ. Let me explain it like this. Um, my mother, during the summers, when me and my brother were younger, would often tell us, I'm leaving the house, I'm going to work, and you two need to clean up the house and have it ready by the time I get home, right? Which was usually around 5 o'clock. And she would tell us to do this, and then she would leave. Now, can you guess what me and my brother did? We lived like 80s rockers all day, right? There were cans all over the place. We ate food and threw it all over the place. And I mean, it was, it was disgusting. And we'd invite friends over and have dance parties. I mean, it was glorious. And then we would look at the clock, and right around 4 o'clock, we told everybody they needed to go home. We cleaned up the entire house. Why? Why did we do all of that? Right? 
It's because we know that the return of our mother was imminent. And she could come home at 4.30. She could come home at 5. She'd come home at 5.30. We didn't know. But you know what? For one hour, we were saints. And for the other eight hours, we were devils. So here's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying that since you do not know when Christ will return, you should act like me and my brother did in that hour. And don't risk it to act like us the other eight hours. That's the point of this text. Peter said if we truly believe in the end of all things, that Christ will come back and Christ returns, we should live as if that can happen at any moment. Peter lives like that, and we're called to live like that. We are called to live as if Christ can come back in the next five, four, three, two, one. That's how we should live. Now, I'm not a prophet. I didn't know. That, that would have shocked me if Christ did come back in five <laughs> seconds. Uh, I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, you know, getting a little nervous there. But, but anyway, but anyway, that's beside the point. The point is, you should live that Christ can come back at any moment. Now, there's a second objection, and I think it's one that's pretty weighty. Here's the second objection. The second objection is this. Pastor Dennis, this is just a scare tactic. You know, it's sad that there was a time in evangelicalism where people used hell and impending judgment to scare people into becoming Christians. And there are some people say, well, you know, all this talk about hell, all this talk about Christ returning, this is just a scare tactic. You're trying to get us to accept Christ because he could come back and judge us at any moment. Now, I, I'll be the first one to admit some people have preached hell like that. Some people have preached the judgment and the return of Christ like that, just to scare people. But that's not what I'm doing. I'm not preaching and talking about the imminent return of Christ and hell just to scare you. I'm simply telling you this because I believe it to be true. Let, let me say it like this. Imagine if I was a skydiving instructor. Just imagine. And I took you up in the air, and I said, hey, before you jump out the airplane, you really need to put on your, your um, parachute, right? And you looked at me, and you said, okay, and you put on your parachute. Now, am I using a scare tactic? No. I'm telling you how the laws of nature work. I'm telling you how the laws of gravity work. If you jump out an airplane without your parachute on, They'll be scraping you up off the ground. That's not a, ta a scare tactic. That's just reminding you how the laws of nature work. When I, when I or any pastor proclaims that Christ is coming back and therefore your life should be different, I am not trying to scare anybody. I'm trying to tell you how the laws of the spirit world work. See, Peter says clearly that when the Gentiles, verse number three, when the Gentiles live in such a way that Christ is not coming back in sensuality, sensual passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, they're living in such a way as if they don't believe Christ is coming back and there's a judgment for them. In the same way, if you're a believer and you live in such a way that you truly believe that Christ will return, there's blessing for you. That's not a scare tactic. That's just the laws of the Spirit. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because of this. How you live always determines how you die. 
You know, when I was growing up, there was a song, and it's not a good song, please don't look it up. Please don't look it up. But there was a line in the song that said, there are six million ways to die, choose one. Now look, that's not true. The Bible tells us that there are only actually two ways you die. You either die in faith, in Christ, or you die outside of the faith and outside of Christ. And there's no other option. If you live in such a way that evidences that you are outside of the faith, you will be judged in accordance with that. But if you live in such a way that you evidence you are in the faith, you will be blessed as a result of that. That's the law of the Spirit. That's the law of the Spirit. And that's why Peter is telling them here, look, live in such a way that the end of all things are at hand. Now, how about the practice of eschatological living? That's the purpose of uh, eschatological, if I could say the word, eschatological living. The purpose of it is that you and I might live in light of eternity, as if Christ could come back at any moment. And that should change the way you and I live. No longer doing the things that we want to do, but doing the things that God, has want, uh, God wants us to do because we'll have to give an account. Now, what about the practice of eschatological living? Well, well Peter tells us the practice, uh, the, the, you know, the, <clears throat> the practice of eschatological living in verse number 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, so as a result of that reality, what do we do? We need to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Now, that reality is seen in verse number one. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ, right? That you live sober-minded and you live self-controlled. That that's the calling of the gospel. That should be our practice. Now, there's a particular irony in this text as well. Notice with me in verse number four. The Bible says, with respect to, to this, meaning the Gentiles, they are surprised when you do not join in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, this is an important text, and here's why. Peter is saying that when unbelievers see you live, they're surprised that you are living as if Christ will return. To them, you're living like a mad person. You're living like a crazy person. But in actuality, Peter is saying The real crazy people here are people who live in such a way that Christ isn't going to return. Uh, R.C. Sproul, a great Reformed teacher, some of you know him, uh, he's responsible for Ligonier Ministries. R.C. Sproul told a wonderful story one time. He uh, he did a lecture somewhere, and this this man who's an atheist came up to him and said, Dr. Sproul, um, wonderful lecture, I can tell you are an intelligent man, you're an articulate man, it's just a shame you believe in Christianity. What a waste. To which Dr. Sproul looked at him and said, sir, I can tell you're an intelligent man, and I can tell you're very articulate. I am absolutely flabbergasted that you do not believe in Christianity. And I love that story because what is Dr. Sproul saying? It's easy to miss, but here's what he's saying. The bigger shock isn't that an intelligent, articulate person believes in Christianity. The bigger shock 
is that an intelligent, articulate person doesn't believe in God. That's the bigger shock. You see, you all live in a world where people say it's surprising, right, when someone who's intelligent, somebody who has a lot going on for them, that they don't believe in Christianity. That's surprising. No, 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 that's not surprising. That's very much true. The bigger surprise is why so many people, with all the evidence we have for Christianity, don't believe in God. And that's what Peter is saying here. The big shock and the big surprise isn't that we live in light of eternity. The bigger shock is why people would live in sensuality and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties, knowing, knowing that Christ will return. God has placed within each and every human being what Calvin calls the census divinitatis. It means a sense of God. Every human being has it. Every human being has it within them. And every human being knows that there is such a thing as a God. And yet, so many people reject the teachings of Christianity and live in such a way that they will not give an account one day. To me, that's shocking. It's shocking to me that so many people live and do whatever they want to do as if one day they will not stand before their creator and give an account. And so what is Peter saying here? Peter is saying, Christian, don't forget. You will give an account to your Savior one day and therefore live in a self-control way and sober-minded. Now for the sake of time, I'll just do verse number 8. And I encourage you to read through this passage because it's powerful. But Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers the multitude of sins. Have you, have you ever read through the New Testament and wondered to yourself, why is the love ethic constantly invoked? That's another Bible study, by the way. Go, go through the New Testament and see how many times the love ethic is invoked. Every time you read through the New Testament, we are told to love one another. We're told to, to love your fellow man. I mean, constantly we're told that. Why is that? Here's why. Who better to reflect the love of Christ than those whom the love of Christ has been spread on? Who better? See, we have to understand. Peter is saying two things here. The first thing Peter is saying this. You and I, as God's people, need to love one another in, in spite of what people have done uh, to us. The offenses that people have uh, done to us. People hurt our feelings. People have done uh, bad things to us. Peter is saying we should, we should love them in spite of that. Why? Because Christ loved you even though you committed the greatest offense against you know what's interesting to me? And it shows our self-righteousness. Somebody says something to us, somebody hurts us, somebody does something to us, and, and what happens? We think it's the, it's the unforgivable sin. Uh, so-and-so was mean to me. I'll never speak to them again. Or we're too sophisticated for that. We'll just avoid them. Right? Now, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that love is supposed to cover the multitude of sins. Why is that? Because the greatest sin we could ever commit against anyone, which is God, he forgave us. That's the impetus for forgiving sins. But there's another powerful reason, and it's embedded in the gospel. 
If God could forgive a sinner, who are you not to? You know, one of the most powerful realities of the gospel is that God literally forgives anyone that comes to him. It's a powerful reality. See, we're more discriminatory when it comes to who we forgive and who we love. We're we're far more discriminatory. But the beauty of the gospel is that there is this universality to the gospel in which no one lies outside of the love of God. That's why this text is so powerful. He says, above all things, love one another earnestly since love covers the multitude of sins. It's a powerful reality that you who have been forgiven so much, you who have been loved so much, are now called to go out into the world and spread that same love. Pastor, you don't know what they did to me. I don't. I don't. But I know what you did to Jesus, and he forgave you. And I know what the calling of the believer is. And you know, those two realities are powerful realities. It's what we call the rubber meets the road Christianity. It's either you believe it or you don't, right? Powerful reality in Scripture. All right, now, what's the big takeaway? Well, the big takeaway is simply this, that you and I live in light of eternity. We live in the light of eternity. It is said of the former, um, the reformer, Martin Luther, that what fueled his tenacity, this is one of his, um, uh, this is one of his biographers, powerful biography. He said, what fueled Martin Luther, his tenacity, was his unwavering belief that he was witnessing the last days, that Christ's return was imminent. It fueled him. In fact, one of Luther's motto was sub specie eternitatis. Simply means Luther lived in the shadows, in the specter of eternity. To put another way, he lived in light of eternity. And why did Luther live that way? Well, because his Lord lived that way. Do you realize that Jesus, from the moment he came on earth, lived in light of eternity? Listen to these statements. I came to seek and save the lost. That's a statement of eternity. I must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because there was a soul there in need of saving. That's someone who has an eternal perspective. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's a statement of eternity. Or what about this one? I will not drink of the wine again until I enter the kingdom of God. That's a statement of eternity. Beloved, Jesus lived in light of eternity. We are called to live in light of eternity. May God help us indeed to do that. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful reminder that Peter gives us that one day when we die, we will face our maker. And Lord, um, I pray that everyone in here will hear the statement, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But if there is one that does not know what the outcome will be, may they turn to you and repent and ask for forgiveness and receive the blessing 
and the love that flows from your grace. Help us all to live as if you can come back at any moment, not in fear, but in eager expectation as we will see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.